0: Welcome to the Reverberations podcast. This series is curated and hosted by me, Zara Ashad, and made possible with funding and support generously provided by the Design History Society UK. Reverberations as an initiative was originally proposed in late 2018 as an events program, a set of in-person conversations that would seek to address marginalization, underrepresentation and erasure in the UK's cultural and creative sectors. This group of talks was partly driven by my own harmful experiences of the fields in which I professionally practise, specifically museums, academia and design. While the podcast that you are currently listening to, a reincarnation of the aforementioned events programme, was developed throughout 2020, a year defined by COVID-19, the murder of George Floyd, and the subsequent heightened energy of the important Black Lives Matter campaign, in addition to new surges in anti-Asian hate. As these happenings and more have been taking place around me, I have doubted the value of public discussion, querying how can we move beyond lip service and help to enact meaningful change. The exchanges that I have had mostly during lockdown with the brilliant group of individuals who feature in this series offer glimpses into the possibilities and imaginings of how such change might be achieved, such as through collectively creating new systems, building networks of care and empathy, and thinking more carefully about whose voices we choose to amplify. The works, ideas and approaches briefly encapsulated here have greatly informed my own thinking, I hope these recordings will be similarly useful for you. Organised around three key themes, institutions, divergent models, and decolonizing design and culture, season one of the podcast broadly focuses on history making, particularly in relation to design history and design studies. The conversations that feature implicitly reflect on how and where our histories have conventionally been told and who gets to tell them through considering the work and experiences of BIPOC peers and colleagues who have navigated, continue to navigate, and frequently resist institutional structures and frameworks in varying ways. In this episode, I speak to Etienne Joseph, an archivist, memory worker, and co founder of Decolonising the Archive, or DTA. Etienne's work more broadly is contributing to the development of an African diasporic archival methodology that centres the preservation of Pan-African archival material through use. Welcome Etienne and thank you so much for speaking with me today.
1: Hi Zara. thank you for having me, I'm looking forward to it.
0: So I wanted to start the conversation if I may by delving immediately into decolonizing the archive. Could you please, in your words, provide a quick overview of the initiative? How and when did it come about? What were its main aims? Who's involved, etc.? Yeah, if you could just tell us a bit more about that. Around,
1: I would say 2013, 2014. So basically, um, I finished an MA looking um, to qualify as an archivist. And um, within that, I was a bit concerned that I couldn't really see myself. So I'm um, dual heritage, but um, I would identify as an African-Caribbean um, man. And I just didn't really see myself or my community within that profession. And so from that point, it, there, was, there was a sort of seed to that. Okay, well, there's some work to do here. And I suppose when I say I didn't see my myself or my community, I didn't mean necessarily within the institutions the heritage institutions of the time or anything like that I literally meant kind of methodologically just thinking about things that I could relate to within the teaching within the, the practice and so there seemed to be work to be done and so from that point that was sort of 2013 maybe 2014 and so it really started as almost an experiment in a way just literally publicly I suppose thinking through what a an African heritage or black there's a lot of work around terminology so apologies if I interchange between the two Um, but what a a black method archival methodology would look like and really it started more so there's this kind of fairly forced but useful in some way distinction in archive between uh, preservation and use this idea that there's this tension between trying to preserve material and um, making sure that people can access it And I think it started much more on the side of use and engagement. So just thinking about uh, material that was in archives that wasn't necessarily accessible or accessible by people didn't necessarily feel that they could visit those spaces or didn't really engage with that material. So that was part of it, thinking about that. But then there was also, and this is going back to before I was involved in archives at all. So I come from a background. Um, my background is sort of music and arts. And I, in what in particular, so I'm a, a drummer, sort of trained as a drummer in various different kind of traditions. And all of that knowledge was passed down um, in a very kind of embodied way. It's sort of knowledge that's in people's bodies that they pass on and pass on the songs and all of that. You know, nothing's written down, nothing is sort of preserved. And also, it's very active. It's nothing that's uh, kept in a room in the dark and cold until somebody decides to look at it. It's kind of in your body, it's kind of part of you. And so, it was really, it started on that side. DTA started on the side of thinking about material that was less seen, shall we say, and also thinking about the idea of an archive being not just something that is material in the paper and photographs and film sense, but also thinking about it as actually people's embodied experience and the, the so-called intangible. So yeah, that's how it began. And it's just kind of grown from there over time. And it's been very organic in how it's done that. Not necessarily been an initiative that had been like, okay, well, the, the plan sort of evolves as we do things and 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 things resonate mm-hmm. and you asked about who was involved it's so we describe ourselves as a modular collective so it's actually probably not going to run down everybody's names right now but there's quite a large group of people over the years that have been involved but there's sort of a core of about three or four of us that um, work in different ways so I work with, you know, my training is archives, but then I also, you know, I've got a background in music and audio and we've got a theatre practitioner, done a lot of work with applied theatre. And so you'll see theatre quite a strong thread in our work. And then there's people that kind of help with the more the kind of administrative and social media aspects. And yeah, and then other than that, then there's a sort of a wider network that plug in for various things depending on what, what the project calls for at the time.
0: Um, I mean, that sounds great. And actually learning more about your own background and experience working with music and your training as a drummer. Something that struck me, at least you know from an external perspective, was that audio seems to be quite central to DTA. And I kind of mean that both conceptually. So in some of the work that you've done, I noticed that um, you're recognizing oral traditions that might be used within some of the communities that your work focuses on but I also mean it in relation to your actual content so you have um, your own radio and podcast episodes for example so can you speak more about how this focus on audio as a practice as a medium came about beyond your the, the kind of personal training that you brought to the project?
1: Um, it's difficult to go far beyond that because I think that's really at the core of it and there's two things that when you ask the question there's two things that come to mind one is just orality as a sort of foundational practice within African communities wherever they find themselves and there's this kind of although I don't think it's entirely accurate because I think Africa's got quite a long-standing written tradition even if you kind of look at ancient Egypt and there's you know there's plenty of examples of oral tradition not the oral tradition of uh, written tradition there and so and and it's not just you know it's not just that part either there are multiple examples i think of written traditions on on the continent so i don't think that's necessarily entirely accurate but i think um, oral tradition is a really strong part of the culture and then also because i'm kind of coming out of a african caribbean context and i think oral tradition is really strong there both in just thinking about storytelling um, both not necessarily in a pub you know both privately and in public there's a kind of uh, oration and oral and orality are really important and so there's all of that heritage that's just there just sitting in my body in a way even before i really think too much about it but then also I've trained as a I did you know my first degree was audio technology and I've worked as kind of a DJ and used to produce events for quite a long time and work with MCs and so there's quite a long kind of tradition within my own lifetime of working with audio so I think it's just come about because that's what I know in all senses of both in the ancestral and in the in the present that's just very audio is a very present thing and then there's uh, the radio is there's a practical element to that which is that we we thought about doing radio before any of the pandemic came on um, we kind of had the that was already in the vision but then the pandemics made it seem even more like the right thing to do we're like okay this is actually a really good time to to start working um, with audio in that way and in a more in a more focused way and so there are kind of practical things around that too because i think even just thinking about yeah practically working with working with film is um i don't want to say harder i don't want to sort of i think that people that audio editors are very it's a a very important role so i don't want to say that you know working with film is in any way better but it's definitely Mm -hmm. um, consumes more resources so it's just yeah that, that that's just something that is part of our decision making as well just thinking about what we can actually and maybe we'll talk a bit later about kind of resourcing and all that kind of uh, that kind of side of things but then we that's also a consideration it's just like what's sustainable and so audio seems to have been a sustainable thing for us so yeah i hope that answers the question but they're the r- real reasons why Actually, so there is one more part uh, There, you know, there's other people that um, are involved in the project that are maybe poets or kind of, you know, or, or they themselves are sort of immersed in their kind of take on an oral tradition. So I think mm. that's also plays into the picture, too. So, yeah, they're the reasons why, really.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to hear how all of these different elements kind of overlap and coalesce. Um, And I am really interested, actually, in learning more about the practicalities of maintaining DTA. But before we kind of touch on that, um, I wanted to ask, you know, as you were talking, you know, you mentioned that your first degree was in audio tech. And we've spoken a bit more about, you know, your training in drumming, for example. You've mentioned that you did your master's and that you were looking into archiving. How did you how and why did you make that transition from working more within audio and music and then moving over to looking at archives
1: it's an interesting one because it's not something I didn't you know when I was 18 I didn't think yes I'm gonna go I want to be an archivist that's my dream like no that wasn't (laughs) that's not really what I was looking at doing but I suppose the trajectory went something like this so when I finished that first degree and I was working in music in various different ways whether it's kind of independent production type stuff or um, I used to do a lot of kind of mentoring and training work with younger people as well and then mm. at some point as I was learning some of the drumming and that that you know that kind of more traditional in quotes uh side of things I was working for a an organization called Irie Dance Theatre who I'm still actually am about to we're about to do some work with them again now but that's a another story but um, yeah I was working with them at the time and they now run a dance of the African diaspora degree and at the time they were doing a foundation degree course and I think I'm running another couple of courses as well so it's basically a dance school but it used to be a performing dance company but then were essentially they were teaching and I was a musician there and they had said at one point I think you know one day we just finished doing some rehearsal for a piece and they're like oh we've got this uh, music archive we think you, you know maybe you'd be interested in having a look at it and I was like, okay, yeah, that sounds re- that sounds really interesting because I suppose they knew I was into sound and into um, collecting music and stuff. And it turns out that it wasn't wasn't really a music archive; it was more like their kind of company archive, which was most you know kind of photographs and papers that relate to you know their actually their history as a performing dance company but i think they just picked up on the fact that i was also interested in history in general and particularly history of uh, african african diaspora and it just sort of grew from there so i started looking you know and going through some of that material and i volunteered for the black cultural archives in brixton at the time as well and then a bursary opportunity came up that the national archives were putting out to study for a career as an archivist and it was just at the time where some of the the community of so more community focused work I was doing was the the funding was getting pulled back for it a little bit and it was so just like oh actually this might be a good thing to do to give me another avenue to um, pursue things that I enjoy in my life so mm-hmm. I did that course and then you know, the rest is history, as they say. Um, and that's a really bad pun, but I didn't mean to. Um <laughs> but Yeah, that's that basically what happened. So, um, yeah.
0: And you, I mean, you've done, you know, you mentioned work working for the National Archives, but you've also worked for the Hackney Archives, and you had a really rich career thus far. I was doing some reading around your work, generally speaking, so beyond DTA, and I was struck by uh, one of the ideas that you proposed in a paper that you wrote was this idea of approaching the archive as living repositories um, and repositories of living. Um, and I was really struck by that idea. Can you speak more about this approach?
1: Um, I can, I, you presenting the quote back to me, I'm like, oh, did I write that? Oh yeah, I did write that. <laughs> uh, so um, really, I, I just, I touched on it in the introduction. Um, uh, it's basically, Ever since I was training, it was just that sense of there not really being, there, just, there was, seemed to just be this really sharp distinction. So even before we get to this idea of living, then there, mm. there is already a bit of a distinction in the profession between an archive, a library and a museum. Mm. And I suppose my the way I was approaching it was just like, actually, I was thinking about m- more what somebody because often somebody's coming to any each of those situations to find information and, they, and I don't necessarily think I mean it, there's a professional reason why they're kind of separated a bit but I think sometimes those separations and distinctions can be a bit unhelpful and so yeah. that's kind of at the start of that thought and then I just suppose I just then you know thought about my my history and my route to get to there just thinking about how important the body was and i guess what lies beyond the body as well um you know but how important things that weren't kept in rooms were things that were kept in bodies and in minds and in spirits and Mm -hmm. so that's really what that paper is all about essentially just i think i was talking about this idea of everything is everything and basically not making such sharp distinctions and understanding how material and the body and what lies beyond it all kind of intersect and interact yeah so yeah that was really what I was getting at and I think I drew on a couple of because uh, academia does like you to um doesn't like to just talk it likes you to say, what other, theory. Pe- say what other people say <laughs> yeah. so I did draw on uh, some you know some uh, some some of what other people said Um, thinking specifically about Bokongra tradition in Central Africa and also the Kemetic tradition coming out of what is known as ancient Egypt and how their cosmologies kind of talk about this kind of everything being everything and how your life can be recorded in a very ethereal way as well as a very physical way so yeah that was what that packet was about.
0: So then how do you start to pull out these kind of more ethereal elements within your kind of archiving work does that does um, that then kind of move from being immaterial to more material kind of manifestation
1: I'm not sure if it's got to the stage where I've, I haven't really fully locked that down in a, in a methodology it's just more a way of approaching a situation I suppose right. um, so even in terms of just before we started this we were talking about oral history when you walk into a room with somebody then there's what you've researched about them but then there's also thing you know you pick up information about that person just by how the room feels and how they feel and it's just more about how you accounting for that within how you approach anything i suppose so thinking about that in um in archival terms then it might just be about how i interact with uh how i approach people about physical stuff about material um just accounting for that kind of unspoken information that's around them and around me and i know it sounds really this sounds a bit vague so i don't know how to pin (laughs) it down because it's quite hard to pin down because i think by its nature it's quite vague but it's just i suppose it's about just recognizing that stuff within an encounter i suppose Mm. and how material operates on those levels so even you know very physical stuff like uh, when we've done work with traditional archives and then there's a there's a lot going on emotionally and in terms of affect and there's a lot going on at different levels of that experience and mm. so it's just about being aware of that I suppose so that's as far as it's got I don't think we've codified it more than that um, but it's, it's present basically
0: That's really interesting actually like what kind of preconceptions do you as a researcher carry with you when you kind of go into a situation you you mentioned oral histories? So when you kind of enter a space intending to conduct an oral history and just maybe stepping back and being more aware, as you say, of different forms of knowledge, if I can kind of not even paraphrase what you're saying, but um, maybe reinterpret what you're saying. I think that, yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, But my next question was going to be, do you have a physical version of your archive? And so I'm not really sure if this is applicable or if, if... there's not are there plans to build a physical iteration of it so where do you kind of see DTA going in the future
1: so you you're picking up on the vibes you must have been a, you, we're in the same place because it's very applicable and the reason it is is that um we never set out particularly to store material. It was much more about engaging. It was about experience, basically. It was about experiencing material and creating potentials for experience. But then through doing that, you amass stuff. It just happens. (laughs) As a a sort of, um, which is how archives work, as as a kind of, uh, you know, side effect of doing things. Then you create uh, this stuff. That's an evidence of you having done the thing and so because we've been going for um, a little while now then we're at sort of at the point where we're like okay yeah we've got an archive now of just the evidence of the stuff that we've done and so we are thinking through that i mean obviously i'm an archivist by profession as well so it's not something that i haven't thought through Mm. at the beginning or at least at the early stages of you know the possibility of us having stuff and what we're going to do with it But now it's becoming a bit more like, okay, we actually do need to take some more concrete steps to deal with it. Possibly because of resources to some degree. A lot of our evidence is digital. So Mm -hmm. a lot of our thinking around what to do with this, because I mean, digital stuff is still physical, I'd I'd say, but um, it's just a different type of physicality. But um, a lot of our thinking is around what we're going to do with that digital stuff. But then what's quite interesting is that Um, I've been in a couple of situations recently just outside of DTA where the digital has not been particularly reliable as a a long-term store of information. And so we're kind of both looking at digital preservation as a thing that we need to act on beyond, because at the moment we've kind of replicated what we have in a few different places. And so, you know, if one goes down then we've got another kind of thing. Um, the information is fairly structured but then beyond that we haven't really done much and you know I don't know how much you're engaged or your listeners are engaged with digital preservation as an archival discipline but there you know it's quite a lot more involved than what I've just described so we're like very rudimentary early stages of that but then also thinking through um We've got all of this and this is funny because it's like a contradiction, but it kind of isn't because um, going back to that paper, that thing about everything was everything. That's kind of what I'm saying. We are also looking at transcribing a lot of the shows that we've done for the station and also just thinking about ways that we can actually make more tangible. Some of the things that are slightly less tangible because different things have different uses. And it, was, it would be quite useful, both from a preservation standpoint and also thinking about maybe how to um, then repurpose those things in other ways. It might be, it would be quite useful to have transcriptions and have these things maybe printed out and kind of stored in a very physical way. So, yeah, we're thinking through all of that at the moment um, and have started to act on it, but it's, we're also still doing a lot of the doing And I think most people that are involved, particularly in the arts will, you know, that they've often got really rich archives, but also often haven't had that much time to spend on doing them, like sorting them out properly because they're too busy um, actually doing the work and there's not enough time and resource to think about the other bit. And we're sort of in that, stage but then at the same time as an archivist i can't really not do it it would be pretty bad so um i'm i'm definitely still uh we're definitely still working towards a more stable legacy i suppose
0: um and actually that kind of really nicely brings me to another aspect of dta that i wanted to briefly discuss with you because as far as i've understood it dta is not actually just an archive um you have you know some of these other Arms, if you will, of the initiative. And what I'm specifically thinking of is DTA.Space, which is described as a rolling digital residency program open to practitioners of African heritage who explore, create, recreate, and reimagine pan African heritage practice. So, could you tell us a bit more about DTA Space? What were the aims behind the residency program I was going to ask you why a digital residency but I think you've kind of um, already touched on that kind of format and how and why you've adopted it but yeah can you tell us a bit more about the residency program some of your former residents the work that you've kind of created out of that
1: I, I think I said I was speaking at a conference on saturday and I said, well, we couldn't afford a building, but we could afford a website. So that's basically <laughs> why why our residency is there. Um, but really what it is, is as we were developing our own practice and our own approach, you just meet these amazing people that are doing um, really interesting things. And they may not necessarily always even be fully interpreting them through the lens that we are, but they're definitely speaking to similar Yeah, our our trajectories are kind of uh, aligned in some way, and so we just thought, well, it would be really nice to be able to provide a space for people to explore that. Or because it's not like a funded program, I mean, you know, we DTA is for the most part a self-funded endeavor. So the reason I work and do other things is so we can kind of have this space to be ourselves without kind of having to particularly hit targets that we haven't set or tick boxes that we don't agree with and so we can't you know not to say that we'd rule out paying what we could for you know residency if somebody was unable to participate in it without us being able to support them in some way but as it stands it's not something that's paid at all so most of the time it's literally um, projects that exist but then maybe haven't been seen within haven't been seen connected to the lens that we're looking through or really? they or just maybe haven't been seen that much at all so that's really where the idea comes from it's just to create a bit of space for people to express and I think to date we've only had two residents there's a couple more that we're discussing right now but I'm not going to say too much about them until that moves forward and I can't this is really bad, but I actually can't remember when we started it. It was, I think, about 2019, the end of 2019, going into 2020. Yeah, I think it was, I think it was around then we began it. And um, the first resident was um somebody called Gino Edwards, who is a Jamaican New Yorker that was we'd sort of met in London. And he was doing this work. It was, you know, it's not surprising based on our conversation today. His work was about, um, it's called Resonance, this project, and he basically made a film and a book to accompany it. Basically, it was a project exploring his Jamaican heritage and thinking about a practice called Kumina, which is kind of recognised as one of the most overtly African spiritual practices that occurs as practice in Jamaica, and so he was thinking about that but then he was making this i don't know let's call it comparison maybe it's not even a juxtaposition because he was giving it he was kind of hinting at the fact that there's quite a strong connection um there was a, a night a club night called steam down that happened in deptford in southeast london and his film was juxtaposing these two ideas this kind of spiritual practice that came from indentured congolese laborers in jamaica and this Jazz night effectively, like a kind of jazz night that was happening with the young. I mean, the crowd was mixed, but I think a lot of the musicians were coming from an African or African Caribbean background. And he was basically saying that although people are not consciously aware of it, they sort of carry certain things through with them. And he was just kind of making some comparisons about how what those two spaces had in common, I suppose. And yeah, so that was really interesting, both because I, I'm not by any stretch, because coming is a thing that you kind of have to be born into and you grow up in. So I'm not saying I, I did any of that, but um, I definitely learned quite a bit about it when I was working with drumming at that, at that point that I explained before at IRI. And so it resonated on that level, but then also all the ideas about heritage, it kind of resonated on that level. So we we're like, it'll be really good to platform that work and sort of extend the conversation we're already having with, you know, his input into that. And yeah, so that was the first project. And then the second one is still up now and it's Lisa George's um, project called Cornrows and Head Wraps. And again, it's this embodied slash oral focus thinking about braiding hair and the, the history in that, not necessarily, I think she touches on the idea of the kind of actual tradition of braiding hair within African communities and what that means but then she was also thinking about oral transmission of information during that process of getting your hair platted. Um mm. and also I think the actual you know the the technique itself and how that sort of handed down as well so yeah again it is a very kind of um but then she's also you know she's She's made sure to create some documents. I think the participants within that project they also had to write something as well. So she's kind of created this archive um, that's sort of part physical and part intangible, which yeah we've based on everything we've spoken about so far, you'll probably see that you can see how it kind of resonates with the sort of things that we're interested in and mm-hmm. so yeah that's a second residency that's happened and um we haven't actually advertised it too much not 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 their work we have advertised that but we haven't actually advertised the the fact that it's kind of open for residents because we've just been kind of focusing on other elements of of our projects as well so um i think something we need to do this year a bit more is a bit more of a call out and start to build that again because we sort of built it and then when covid kicked in then we've kind of been focusing on radio and another couple of projects so it's just it's something that we're picking up again um, in the very near future.
0: But I was as you were you know talking describing some of the work that has been contributed as part of DTA space I was quite curious to specific I mean this is a very specific question but to learn how you might be capturing or archiving the work of the residents for DTA so it kind of comes back in this into this loop
1: it's funny that you use the word capture because um yeah it's kind of got d- it, interesting resonances the word capture and I think my thinking about the word capture sort of governs the depths that we will go to to preserve it because I suppose ultimately it's that person's work like we it's not a commission or anything like that so we're not I mean, the elements that are shared in terms of, you know, as we are building the space or those conversations that create whatever whatever happens on the platform, that stuff is lives in our file structures just because it's useful to have it for reference or if something goes down or whatever. So it's kind of unintentionally archived, if you like. When um, Gino's project came down, then I at some point we did some screenshots just kind of so we could say it happened if that makes sense Well, because otherwise there'd be no trace of it really in terms of that, that connection but didn't go to really you know super strong lengths to capture it all because in a way you kind of felt like it's yeah whatever happened naturally has been kept but then we didn't kind of you know scroll through everything play every video all of that um you know for posterity and I think it's something to do I hadn't thought about it much but I think it's actually something to do with the idea of capture and ownership and what that means it kind of maybe felt a little bit um almost colonial I suppose to kind of kind of gather it all up and then keep it for you know some unspecified purpose in the future um, so we haven't really intentionally done that but not saying that we neglected to keep any information because there is some there just as I say by nature of how the the projects come about that's the best I can answer that I think.
0: I was thinking at this point maybe I could pick up on you know something that we mentioned earlier on in the conversation Um, the practicalities of running an initiative like DTA. So you have other work that you engage with alongside this initiative. How do you keep something like this sustainable? How do you kind of keep it long-term or or make this a long-lasting effort? And I kind of mean this from the perspective of sourcing funding um, to even finding the time and the energy to maintain DTA so how do you kind of go about negotiating all of that?
1: It's really difficult when you're in a paradigm where your culture is not the dominant culture and there's very little support for it in its in its truest forms I suppose then you kind of have to change your ideas of what sustainability and success actually are because I think if you Work based upon an idea of a certain level of income or a certain level of reach, then not to say that those things are not attainable, but I just don't necessarily think that um, you're not factoring in the fact that, in some quite important respects, the, <laughs> si- the system that you're operating in is actually subconsciously against what you're doing (laughs) so so and that's quite a strange position to be in so basically one of the things that's really important to us is Mm self-determination and the reason that's not necessarily um complete independence because i think the world is made to be an interdependent space so i don't think there's any such thing as you know total independence because you're always interdependent with something But then at the same time, you do need a level of independence, both for your kind of your own self-respect and also to make your contribution in the world, I think. And so DTA is kind of coming from that rationale that the methodology that we're developing, and, you know, obviously there will be African or Black uh, archival methodologies in the plural, like, you know, we're not developing like the... (laughs) the one that everyone's going to follow but um that kind of contribution to the thinking is really important because it's just part of a bigger picture of uh self-determination and independence for african people all over the planet basically like you know if you look politically how things break down then there's although i think the west or the global north or whatever you want to call it are um quite dependent on africa's resources you don't necessarily get the sense that um, you know. You, they don't necessarily talk about it in those terms, so you, you often forget that that's the case. <laughs> and right. so, I, we, so in that independence and that be kind of setting your own destiny has been really important to us. So, in terms of sorry, going back to the question. So that's my soapbox. So, um, <laughs> so going back to the question of sustainability. I think for us it's difficult because we want to preserve a level of independence and so um, and we had you know part of our research into other parts you know other projects we've been involved in you kind of come across all this material in the archives of black-led organizations gone by that depended on funding to exist and then you know the tides changed and the funding went and then they no longer existed and i'm sure those people went on to do other things but we just didn't really want to just didn't see that as a as a useful model so in very specific terms we do we have applied for funding in the past for certain things try um as much as possible to make it funding that we can sleep at night accepting that's quite equitable and we don't have to make massive compromises um but that's not the found you know we're not an organization that's like oh we can't fund this project so therefore we can't do it it's very much like well okay well how how can we do it we could fund it this way or we could do it another way and so we're always balancing those things depending on the projects we're working on so there's elements like so the for example the radio is totally you know we're just not funded at all and you know running running that is you know it it doesn't it's not free let's put it like that so we have to you know invest in certain things um just because either we think they're important or we think that over time they could build into something else but then there's other things that funds appear for people or 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 institutions pop up and say oh you know there's this thing maybe we could do this and then once we've kind of analyzed it and make sure that it's not too yeah not going to upset us (laughs) or anybody else too much then we can move forward with that but it is very much a case by case so in in terms of answers your question whether it's sustainable or how to make it sustainable i think it's as precarious as being a person of african heritage in the uk in 2021 is that's what, that's is that. So then, there's a spectrum of precariousness that we live on, and our organisation reflects where we are as a community in terms of what 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 we need to do in order to survive and um, move forward.
0: Wow, thank you very much. I think that was really insightful and a great way actually to to end the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your stories, for sharing your thoughts. With me today. I'm really excited to see where you'll take DTA in the future and good luck with the initiative as well. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much. And I'm really looking forward to hearing um, the other con- contributors as well. So, yeah, thanks for uh, inviting us to the project.
0: Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify. Or whatever platform it is that you use to access your podcasts. This will help other listeners to find us. With special thanks to Davinia Gregory, Ellie Michaela Young, and Megha Rajguru for their continued support and guidance, Jenna Alsop for editing season one of the Reverberations podcast, and Claire O'Mahony, chair of the UK Design History Society, for championing this work.